Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Juju Chang. I'm uh, one of the co-anchors of ABC's show Nightline, and I'm thrilled to be here with you tonight. And I have the central question of the afternoon, which is, why is it that as audiences we are mesmerized, thrilled, drawn, obsessed, in love with these fictional psychopaths, right? When in reality, think about it, we abhor them. We want to lock them behind bars forever. Well, my guest sitting with me today should be able to shed some light onto that quandary, right? Because in one way or another, they have very intimate relationships with psychopaths. Um, but before... <laughs> my wife is I think I'm in the wrong seminar. <laughs> <laughs> but before I introduce them, let's take a look at some of the spellbinding work that they're responsible for. I'm not armed. He isn't. This is the only way we could have ended, isn't it? This is your choice, James. I died in the trench years back. I thought you knew that. So who's going to do it? Manny? You? I am. My first time I vomited after. Two days straight. Second time, I didn't even think about it. Some fucking stupid. Just try to make yourself calm. You had everything going. Breathe, look. Your whole life. You'll get through it. All you gotta worry about is when you run out of booze, you run out of company. And the only person left to judge you is you. You don't know me, James. You never did. I am not seeking forgiveness. Now I, I understand myself. Thank you. Thank you. But if it's the only real choice we have, if it's either that or you getting shot when you open your front door, you're not some hardened criminal, Walt. You are in over your head. That's what we tell them. That's the truth. That's not the truth. Of course it is. School teacher cancer, desperate for money, roped into working, unable to even quit. You told me that yourself, Walt. Jesus, what was I thinking? Walt, please, let's both of us stop trying to justify this whole thing and admit you're in danger. Who are you talking to right now? Who is it you think you see? Do you know how much I make a year? I mean, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. Do you know what would happen if I suddenly decided to stop going into work? A business... Big enough that it could be listed on the NASDAQ goes belly up. Disappears. It ceases to exist without me. No, you clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I am not in danger, Skyler. I am the danger. A guy opens his door and gets shot, and you think that of me? No. I am the one who knocks.
Where's your clip? I see your clip. They're all good. I don't know about you guys, but I need a sedative. That's a- I, oh, the whole time I was watching that, I was thinking, thank God I wasn't doing That scene was so uncomfortable, just all the rain and out there. Oh, <laughs> we had a nice inside the studio. We're doing it. <laughs> so. Well, I almost don't need to do the introductions, but I will. As a matter of formality, sitting to my left is Brian Cranston, as you know, best known for his stunning performances as Walter White. His show got a little buzz. It was a little show called Breaking Bad. His other work includes a SAG Award-winning performance in last year's Academy Award-winning film Argo, and he's currently garnering unbelievable monster reviews uh, for his portrayal of Lyndon Johnson in All the Way on Broadway. Um, And next to him, you can applaud. I feel like we need to let that out, right? And beside him is uh, Professor James Fallon, who is not to be confused with Jimmy Fallon, his twin brother. Um, but J- James Fallon's a neuroscientist who, among other things, studies psychopathy, murder, dictatorships, and the brain. He's the author of The Psychopath Inside, and he'll tell us a bit more about why we love these characters so much and why we're drawn to them. And beside him is another legendary figure, writer and showrunner Terrence Winter. As a writer on HBO's show The Sopranos, Terry was responsible for some of the series' most memorable episodes and haunting, if I might add. He is the creator and showrunner of Boardwalk Empire, which we saw that fabulous clip of. And he's nominated this year for Best Adapted Screenplay Academy Award for The Wolf of Wall Street, which, of course, was directed by... Martin Scorsese. So let's start with you, Brian, because there's so much to discuss about playing Walter White. I mean, we talked about the duality of the good guy and the bad guy. Who is that guy that we look at? Who is the guy who knocks on that door? Well, um, you know, in, there, there's two ways to look at it. First of all, you, you can look at it objectively as uh, just an, a, a citizen of the world, and then you have to look at it from my objective, is, is subjectively, uh, as an actor taking on a character like that. And there's two different ways to really view it. But objectively, um, I, I just always felt that, that he was a man who was uh, given the set of circumstances that created the, the type of person that he became. Um, he was when we first were introduced to him. He was. It was hard for me to get into his character because um, because his emotional core was calloused over. He was in depression, so I didn't really know what kind of man he was and how he thought and felt. Um, and and through the the diagnosis of uh, terminal lung cancer, with two years to live, that did two things. First of all, it exploded his emotional core because then anything was open. Mm-hmm. He made these decisions that were seemingly rash and, and impulsive, um, but had a purpose behind them. And it also gave him a sense of life. You know, he, he was going to live an extraordinary life those past two years. Is it scary to play a role like that, where you cross that proverbial line into an evil no, character? No, it's catnip. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's what what you know. It's what actors love. You you get a, a character like this once in a career, and uh, if you're lucky. And uh, so, no, it was an easy decision for me to want to do it. The general term, and you know, from Vince Gilligan, our creator, was he wanted to see if he could have a show about change, because um, in in most cases, um, television was about stasis. Uh, reliable characters who adjusted to stimuli, but basically were the same, what, however they were, and and, and there's comfort in that. There, there's there's uh, people do appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, Archie Bunker was fun to watch, you know, and and I and I appreciated his his staunch dogmat, dogmatic approach to things. Um, but this was about something that we're, we're attempting to change, to go from a good character to a bad. Terry, I overheard you say in the green room that I found myself rooting for Walter White. I mean, you create these Mm. equally complex dualities in (coughs) characters, whether it's Tony Soprano or Nookie in Boardwalk Empire. Do you 
draw up a psychological profile to make them empathetic, or does it just come out? Uh, and are you cognizant I, of that? Why did, I didn't create Tony Soprano, uh, first of all. That was David Chase. Um, uh, I was not, I don't think so. I think, you know, I, you start with, you know, in the case of Nucky, Nucky was loosely based on a real character. And again, I think, you know, as, as Brian said, we're all the sum total of our uh, circumstances, our life, our choices, our rationalizations. Um, in terms of any character, I think, if you, if you show any human being in all of their full range of colors and emotion, you're going to find moments of relatability, empathy, hopefully. You know, Al Capone is a good example on our show. We're lucky enough to, to see Al Capone as a very young man and go home with him. Usually in every movie you see Al Capone's at the height of his power and you see the guy with the cigar and the white fedora. You know, we're lucky enough to spend time with the, the guy who became Al Capone. And you say, oh, he has a, a deaf son, which he did in real life. And there are moments of sadness or relatability and you, you find yourself people saying, I can't believe I actually cried for Al Capone, this guy who does these heinous things. Nucky's the same way. I mean, you know, in any, uh, again, you know, showing the full range of people, Tony Brown was a great example. Uh, you know, you see him do these horrific things and then you realize he's having problems with his teenage kids and you go, oh God, it's, it's like, I've had people come up to me and go, it's like you were eavesdropping on a conversation with me and my daughter. And then they feel like, oh, I really understand this guy. And then he goes and kills somebody, and then it sort of jars you out of that. So it's just, again, I think it's just really being honest. And you know, I don't know that anyone is ever purely evil or purely good. We're all sort of a mixture of those things. And James, you study psychopaths. And would you say that these characters run on the spectrum of psychopaths? Because, well, first of all, let's have you define the term, if you will. What is a psychopath? Uh, well, the psychopaths don't exist. That's the first pass at it. And uh, it's not even recognized in you know, the psychiatric manual, the basic psychiatric manual. And the term sociopath well, hasn't been used since 1968. So although we hear it a lot, uh, you know, in, in just a popular culture. I'm and not here. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am. <laughs> You're the guy at the door, right? Yeah. <laughs> He's knocking. I'm, I'm the one it's, who rings. You're the one who rings. <laughs> Jingling. And so... So they don't really exist because they overlap with so many other disorders. It's not useful. But, in but sense. what are the main traits that define? I know that you were yeah. There's gonna... you could put it in dualities. I guess there's one whole group of traits that are more pro-social, and and these are the ones that where somebody's very glib and manipulative, and they have a certain light around them, and and they have a thing called assertive dominance, and they're very uh, they're almost charismatic, and and part of that is probably because they don't have they don't have a morality. And therefore, when they speak, they don't have to worry about how is this going to hurt that person or how is this going to affect that group because they don't care. So they can be very glib and very fast, and they actually seem smarter than they are, although they can be quite smart, uh, because they don't have this other part of the brain that's working, the part down here in the frontal lobe and the so-called social brain. So there's one group like that. And people who have that were first described by this guy, Cleckley, and, and it's basically Casanova. It's a Casanova kind of uh, person. And then on the other side, there's this second type, which is, contains what is called antisocial personality disorder. That's a real disease, a disorder that's recognized. And then overlapping that is criminality. Okay? But you have, think of the overlapping Olympic rings. And so these all overlap enough so it's confusing to, to really say, well, this is a particular kind of person because... You know, in the, in the case of Walter White, he's, he's uh, not quite a malignant narcissist, but full narcissist. He has OCD. I had this growing up, and I'm in a, a heavily narcissistic, and I can identify with that. Other parts of it, you can get from, uh, you can get any combination. So it's not categorically one thing or another. There's many ways. It, 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 there's probably 10 to the 81st power possible human beings you could be, based on all the genetics and all the epigenetics. So you'll, there'll never be another person like you. You're completely unique. So everything's possible. But the thing is, do you see it clinically? And, uh, and clinically, now, the idea is that you're probably born with morality. You know, this has always been a fight from Aristotle and Plato. One thought one way, the other thought the other way. But it looks more and more now in the past 10 years that you are born with a conscience, born with a morality. But if that part of the brain that processes those circuitries, if you don't have it, because in utero it can be suppressed uh, or through brain damage, you don't have any sense of morality whatsoever, and therefore 
this, that the kind of not caring and you just use people as objects comes out. So it sounds as though Walter White is not a psychopath, though he has narcissistic, grandiose, and lacking a social code. Something like I don't know. That. So would you say that, that uh, Walter White's uh, narcissism was dormant? It was there all the time and, and yet well, here's unrealized? Well, the thing. In, in watching, of course, I can't, I can't enjoy many programs because I'm always going, is that a real, you know, is that a real character? <laughs> it's really yeah. obnoxious to watch yeah. them. And, but what you can have is people are born with native skills. Everybody's born with a, a certain genius for mathematics, a certain genius uh, for artistic genius. And it's just that the frontal lobe turns it off. It turns off these things. So people with frontal lobe damage, as they get older, if they have frontotemporal dementia, not where, they weren't artists at all, all of a sudden become very artistic. Or they'll have brain damage, and all of a sudden they have this great math talent. So a lot of the stuff we're born with, and we have a frontal lobe that kind of is our agent, you know? Uh, the creative part is more of this, and, but the agent that controls your behavior turns it off. And if you can find a way to unlock it, it releases all this stuff. And it so why do the we, violence too. And so why do we as audiences get off on watching psychopaths? What is it that, that we get out of sort of seeing this kind of violent tendency or antisocial tendency on screen? Well, you should ask the filmmakers and the actor who really do this. But I, I can give you my interpretation sure. of why. And, you know, it's like horror films. We've, uh, we've looked at uh, people looking at all sorts of imagery and the brain circuits involved. And it, it, you can see that it stretches out people's sense of what a person is. I mean, you watch it, and it, and it really stretches out all the possibilities, right to the, right to the uh, breaking point, if you will. And once that is released through techniques that are used in the writing and direction. Uh, once that's released, it releases dopamine and it can release oxytocin uh, and, and give you this wonderful feeling of euphoria. But you said pieces two, by pieces. But you said there's two kinds of rushes. One is the that's adrenaline right. rush of the violence and the other is yeah. more due to empathy. Yeah, so those people uh, that are, you know, they're kind of genetically, you're, you're born this way. There are certain alleles, forms of genes for oxytocin, vasopressin, and several other transmitters and peptides. If you inherit them, you you will have a type of uh, connectivity with yourself and with other people. And that's emotional empathy. That's what you want when you marry somebody. But if you're a world leader, as it turns out, if you're some kind of leader, if you're, it turns out to be like a, a president's, yeah, they're, uh, they have psychopathic traits. And it's in this, this fearless dominance trait. But part of it is they have the empathy for the whole world, in a sense. And so the empathy for the world does not sit well in the same person with empathy for, like, the family. You get one or the other. So those great leaders, FDR, LBJ, JFK, had all these psychopathic traits, but we, we, we say that is what leadership is about. So we're a little confused as voters. That's fascinating. So that's the science of, of being a psychopath, psychopath. Let's talk about the art of it. I would be curious what, what you guys think the audience gets from watching this? Well, it's, um, I always liken it to riding a roller coaster. You get to experience the, feel, the feeling of what it might feel like to almost die and not die. Um, so that's, the, that's like, for me, that's part two. Is oh my God, that was so great. The dopamine is released. The second rush is, I'm still alive. I can do it again. So for, for uh, creating these characters and spending time with these characters, you get to spend time with a Walter White and be inside that world and be inside that head, what it must be like to live that life or a Nucky or a Tony Soprano or a Jordan Belfort and not have the consequences. Uh, you don't even have to take calls from these people. It's actually uh, a way to spend time in that world without ever you know, paying any kind of price. And I literally felt not only did my heartbeat go up, but I, you know, all sorts of things were happening as I was watching Nucky about to mm -hmm. kill the guy. There's, sure. there's all sorts of stuff that's, well, yeah, that's you going get, on. You really get to live vicariously for a moment inside that character. For me, one of the best examples of that in film history is when Michael Corleone kills uh, Salazzo and the police captain. I mean, you know, there's, I think there's three shots fired in that scene, but you, it's one of the most tense sequences in, in cinema history. You really feel like you're, you're sitting in the shoes of a guy who's about to kill somebody for the first time, and, and it's just the way that thing is constructed. It's, it's just so brilliant because you really feel like it, what, you know, one, one millionth of what it must feel like to be doing that, but again, you know, where else do you get time to, you know, 
to spend time with somebody like that or ever be in that circumstances, God willing, never, but that's what this gives you, and uh, it's, it's pretty exhilarating. Brian, you've spent a lot of time inside Walter White's brain. What do you think people, why do you think people are so drawn to his character? Well, I think he's relatable. I think, um, you know, the more complex a character is and the more honest a character is depicted, I think um, it touches people in a, and it resonates uh, through them. And I think, you know, uh, it, when it was done very craftily, you know, uh, so a psychopath is more interesting to watch in a drama because they are just more interesting, period. In, in days gone by, there were those, um, the bad guys of, of poorly written material um, were just bad. No reason, no rhyme, they're just bad. And it easily for, it's easy for the audience to cast them aside and just go, I'm not even so much afraid of him because he's just bad. You know where he's coming from. You know what he wants. You know, he, you know. Um, but a more interesting, complex character is someone who I, I'm not sure if he's good or bad. I'm, I'm uncertain. Uh, and that, that, I think, is what strikes the, the heart of, of Nucky and, and, and uh, Tony Soprano and, and all the, and my character, uh, is that there's a mixture. It's, it's, it's really what I think human beings are. And as an actor, is it tastier catnip to go out and do the violent scenes or the psychological drama that, that takes part? Well, I don't want to have to, to pick and choose that. I mean, <laughs> when I was told that uh, I was offered this role, I knew that I would have the chance to do all of those. You know, that, that's the big playground that I had, and it's a big one. And, a, and he weaves in and out of his own morality. And uh, ju- and justifies to himself and the thing that I was holding on for all the way, uh, not the play, but the the show is uh, <laughs> is the fact that he was he was saying that he was doing this for his family, and that to me was a reasonable thing to hold on to for this man to justify his actions. The justification is such an interesting um, concept for a psychopath. Terry, you and I were talking earlier about this idea that psychopaths often justify, and Tony Soprano ends up justifying a lot of uh, mm-hmm. what what he does, a lot of the sure. evil. Um, how did that play into some of the storylines that you were delving into? And actually, you should yeah. tell the story about the psych psychological convention because I found that yeah um, well yeah I mean a lot of these guys I mean a lot you know all of these characters who sort of live outside the bounds of uh, conventional society I mean I find it's just it's all of it is rationalization um, in Tony Soprano's case uh, it was okay because they were soldiers it was okay to do what they did because you're signing up for this life and what we did it's just it's no different than a soldier going off to war and killing somebody else you know conveniently disregarding the collateral damage and the, the other you know millions of other lives or not millions but you know all the all the other people who are involved in these things uh, we had done one episode uh, I remember had written a sequence where Tony was talking to his therapist saying that the idea that he cheats on his wife and sleeps with other women is actually it, it, it's good because it makes him happy and it gives him a, a, a fulfills a need that he has and in so doing he goes home and he's happier and calmer and it actually makes him a better dad and, and husband because he's not constantly thinking that's about perfect that. logic and yeah it makes perfect sense <laughs> to him and um, you know yeah we uh, early on in the uh, in the run of the show David Chase and I went to a luncheon um, given by a team of it was uh, a psych either psychologist or psychiatrist or a combination thereof and they had each presented papers about uh, socio- uh, uh, sociopathy and, uh, and various uh, criminal elements. One of the studies concluded that it would be impossible to treat uh, somebody who showed psychopathic or sociopathic traits. Ultimately, they, you really can't treat these people. And in fact, what it was doing was giving them the language to help them become better criminals. Um, suddenly, these guys in prisons were, were rationalizing their behavior again, saying, "Well, the reason I do all these bad things is because my mother didn't breastfeed me, right. and clearly, I was, you know, I was abusing Abused the kids. So child, therefore, right. yeah, this is why I do these things." So it, it, they were taking this information instead of using it to grow and heal and get better. It was a justification for their bad behavior, and ultimately, uh, the conclusion was, at least from this one particular study, is that. 
in fact, you can't help them and, and in fact, made them a better criminal. And David actually, when we walked out of that lunch, turned to me and said, I just, that's the ending of the Tony Melfi story five years from now. That's it. After all this, I've actually helped, aided and abetted this man to become a criminal and, mm -hmm. and not helped him at all. Uh, we, you know, whether or not that is true, I don't know. That is, a, that is at least what this one study concluded. But, you know. So, James, you, it sort of brings up, raises the next natural question, which is, are psychopaths born or raised? Is it inherent? The answer or is yes. Is it, <laughs> yeah, the answer is, it, it looks like it's yes, and you need both components. That is, there's something that happens in utero, and it could be due to a, 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 a very unlucky combination of normal genes. That there, you know, any behavior has maybe 15 or 20 genes that code for it. And usually in this casino, genetic casino, you kind of get a mix. But some people get all of the one kind, right? And, uh, and, and those people can have severe uh, changes in the brain that's part of the normal spectrum, okay? So if you have the, the genetic combination that turns off these areas of the brain having to do with empathy and morality and, and, uh, and understanding the rules of ethics even, that if you have that and you have early abuse, uh, the, this is the combination that's the killer. So just having the genetics may get a little edgy. It may be very competitive. It doesn't make you criminal. And if people are probably 80% of the people, if they undergo that early abuse, they don't end up being psychopaths or having a personality disorder. Sure. They're really mad, and they really want to get even, but that's very different. But the combination of uh, that susceptible part of the population, probably 20%, uh, that's where it happens. And, so, and at the other end, there are people who are so resistant, you can't get to them at all, you know? They, they can just bounce them around all through their life, and they just are quite resistant. And do you agree with the assessment that psychopaths can't be fixed? I, I don't know of, because I'm uh, linked in with a, a lot of psychiatrists and people in, the, in that business, and we can't find a, really a case of an adult or teenage psychopath that's ever been uh, really changed. It's it's pretty fixed. When it's you quite said that, that, that just sent shudders. I have yeah, to say. it's. Uh, well, really... we have you know we have hope as a society that we can fix it. This is part of our thing. Sure. We have hope that you know the character will somehow break out because it's part right. of us. We have these tendencies right. too, but we can overcome it. And in fact, there are people who cannot overcome these things. It's really uh, uh, quite quite tragic and dangerous. Uh, and right now, the idea is how early in somebody's life can you catch it? You know, if you look at traits. I worked with a, years ago with a guy, pediatric neurologist. He said he could tell a young psychopath at about two, starting at two years old, and we follow their whole life. Yeah, it was really... But so the idea is, at what age can you really uh, have a therapy without intruding on the family and that kid's privacy, too, because it's, it's sure. a very complex... What, what might you see in a two-year-old um, that would... <laughs> well, it's an art... It's like a, any two-year-old you have in life. They want to It's an art. It's just it's like an art thing. He says, "I can't tell you exactly." You got a weird feeling. It's like when Richard Nixon was born. You know, the I use my inside voice when I want to use it. You don't tell me when to use my inside voice. Somehow I just don't trust that baby. You know, it's like, and so, so the idea is they're they're probably born and made in the most susceptible part. There's three times you're susceptible to epigenetic changes. Uh, the day of birth, and then for about two years afterwards, are very susceptible. And about for the first three weeks after conception is when you know, maternal stress and all those things really change the genome of the baby. And then right before conception, and I have, I'll, I'll save this, this horror story until later perhaps because it's just, it will make people nervous. But anyway, there's it most three times. All of us. But I have to say... You left out one one trigger point, which is right after you're diagnosed with cancer. Apparently, that's a trigger, it's a trigger point. point. Yes, exactly. Does with this... that, spe with specifically no, cancer. No, no, I'm making oh. that up. Oh. I'm... <laughs> I'm so into this I'm conversation. I believe anything right now. So, but but does this ring true to your character? I mean, what's fascinating to me is that Terry and and what you did at Breaking Bad was intuitive. You intuitively came up with these characters that, for I would guarantee, everybody in this audience feels real. They are real people that we've met in some shade or other. Does what he's saying ring true to what your character evolved into? Well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm listening as a as a neophyte in, in this world and 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 learning a lot. But when you develop a character, um, you don't think of those things at all. That's from a clinical standpoint. Right. Um, you just think from a from a point of view of what you feel is right at the time. 
and the condition that, that Walter White found himself in uh, was extraordinary. And he, for one, you know, the, the, the issues of his life and the depression and missed opportunities and things put him in, a, in an arena that he was going to do something bold for the first time in his adult life because of the fear of, of if he died, he would die, leave his family penniless yeah. through the, the health care system that was broken. And also the last image that his children and his wife would have of him is of this shriveled up little man who couldn't even pee on his own. And, you know, I think especially for a man's ego, you don't want that. You want to have more control. And so the way Vince wrote the, the initial script was to lead him down that path, that he was going to make this bold move. So it sort of unleashes his inner psychopath. Unle- well, or a latent, I, well, I can't perhaps. even say that. Who knows? I, I can't even address that because for Walt, it was simply about doing something, leaving something for his family. Mm-hmm. having more control of how he was going to die. Sure. But that's the grandiosity, the, yep. the psychopathic tendency of, you know, I'm going to leave a big legacy, I'm going to be a big man. I don't even know if it's that. I mean, I think he, he had this number in his head. How, it was more pragmatic. How much money do I need for my kids to go to college? How much money do I need for my wife not to lose the house? How much money do I need so they won't bankrupt themselves for my care? That's the figure. And that initially was what he was going for. I don't know if that's avarice or not, or if that. Well, no, I think anybody anybody in that position can identify with all those things because they said, "Look at what will it take for me to first of all save my image, Uh, and also the worst thing for him was boredom. Right? He was like boredom's the enemy, but it was also he's obsessed about the science and everything. I can really identify with a lot of things in the character, and I think many people can. And the question you're asked is how far would you have to be pushed in order to jump out of society? And I think that's a very legitimate question, and you don't have to be a psychopath to do that. Right? right? It's the, what's the breaking point for somebody, which is yeah. the question. And, um, but in the end, the person had his core values. You know, he, was, he was with his machines. and It was with the purity of what he had created and, uh, and all of that. And I think that sort of epiphany, you could connect with that completely. The underlying details of how it got there are probably, to me, less important when I, you know, when I went back and looked at some, you know, some key passages. Terry, I want to bring you in on this. The idea that another psychopathic tendency is lying and being a particularly good liar. And we mm-hmm. talked about how and sometimes the, the scenes where my mouth was hanging open the most in The Sopranos is when it's the little lies, when Tony's lying to his wife. Mm-hmm. Why is that so compelling to us as, as viewers? Do I you think, think we recognize ourselves in it. I mean, the, fun, the most fun scenes for us to write sometimes, or for me certainly, was, uh, you know, I'd love to, you know, we were able to do things like, you know, um, and this is such a very human thing. Somebody, a character would hear a joke on the show, and then two days later they're talking to somebody else and they present the joke as if they themselves just thought of it. We all have done that. We're all guilty of that. <laughs> and it's such an insight that, you know, you never, ever, I don't know that I've ever seen that done on TV. And, but they, these characters lie to each other all the time. And we even early on sometimes get network notes and they'd say, well, it, this doesn't make sense on page 12. Tony says this, but then he, he completely says the opposite on page 18. And I said, yeah, he's lying. <laughs> and you're like, oh, oh. I said, yeah, well. They never tell. They all they do is lie to each other, and it's 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 constant. It's, it's either rationalizations, lies, or I mean, even the whole the the, the concept of omerta and this. You know, we, we don't rat each other out. These guys rat each other out. They can't they can't wait to rat each other out. As soon as they get arrested, somebody's running to cut deals. I mean, but yet there's still this uh, this fiction that they live under that this is some honorable uh, code that they live under, and it's it's just it's all lies. And Nucky and Boardwalk Empire has. And he's a, a very, politician. We yeah. need him. He's, a, he's he's basically a politician. He's a, he's absolutely a liar. One of the most fun scenes I got to write in season one was uh, there was a uh, a clan attack on uh, on a, a African American character, and Nucky is addressing. Uh, an African American church saying we're going to bring these people to justice and we're going to you know we're going to take care of this and then we push in really tight and pull back and he continues with his speech and he's addressing an all white church saying mm. you know these these negroes won't get away with this and he's just absolutely completely duplicitous right down the middle telling everybody what they want to hear and well uh, as James points out politicians have a lot of psychopathic yeah. yeah. yeah, that's the thing is if you 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 know that you're being conned by sale good salesman and therefore it doesn't count as psychopathy because you know 
right. they're glib and manipulative. That's the game, and therefore it doesn't count, the psychopathy. Right. And if everybody is in, this is where the ethics come in. If the, if the things we all lie to each other, it's not psychopathic. It's what you do. Right. And if we, you know, we have presidents who lie to us, but they lie to save us, you know, to be Nazis. <laughs> Everything says lie. Uh, and so we allow that. And, and there is no edge. There's no bright line separating that in my mind, you know, where it goes really good to bad, right? And, and it's a very uncomfortable thing. And, you know, I, I tried one day to, to tell the complete truth and do good things. <laughs> I, I, was, I almost like had a hernia. I was so exhausted. <laughs> By 10 a.m., and I realized how much lying I do all the time. Sure. All the time. And how many right. phony things I do that I think are okay. Because the story is, I'm doing it for you. I'm doing right. it for this. I'm doing sure. it for peace. And, all, right. and all, it's all nonsense. I'm not saying everybody does that. I'm just, you know, I got into the groove apparently at some point. <laughs> Brian, a total fangirl question. There were so many scenes that I literally couldn't Watch. I, I couldn't do this. Were there any that you? What was the most gross-out scene that for you? <laughs> uh, hmm. Well, early on, there was a, a scene where I instructed my young protege to buy a particular type of plastic <laughs> container to dissolve a body in. <laughs> I couldn't and, watch uh, that. And he uh, <clears throat> he said, "Well, why do we have to do that? We have a perfectly good bathtub upstairs." <laughs> So I did it up there, and which you know this this particular uh, uh, chemical eats away at porcelain and many other things, but not this particular plastic. And so the the whole ceiling came down <laughs> with all uh, liquefied body parts and bones and jaws and things like that, and we had to clean it up. And just getting into the spirit of it, you know, you, you kind of your stomach. Does. <laughs> One of those occasionally to, uh-huh. to that do one was that. a candy store for me. Was, I yeah. really love. Yes, I did. I mean, it's, I, I like the gore and everything because I'm an anatomist. We're trained this way. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, 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 I think we have to pull out the self-discovery notion for you right now, Professor. We have to like pull you out from behind the curtain because you were looking at a lot of these fMRIs, these functional MRIs, and saw patterns in psychopaths and then saw something in your own brain scan. Right. I had, I had been looking at the uh, PET scans and then fMRIs and spec scans of murderers, really bad guys, multiple you know, serial killers, since the early 90s. And I, it was just a side gig, you know, in my, my science. I was just asked to see what the pattern Like a was. lot of our side gigs. Yeah, I was just a side <laughs> And like in about 2005, 2006, I got a bunch of them, and then I saw a pattern. And I didn't know who was normal. I said, don't tell me, because I'll make up a story, right? You, always, mm-hmm. you know, you're always yeah. lying to yourself. I, it's hard not to. And as a scientist, it's the enemy. And so in looking at them, I said, there is a pattern. And at the same time, I just happened to be, a group was doing a study looking for the genes involved in Alzheimer's. And we actually came up with two new genes. It was a very productive study. But we were looking for, we had all of the patients that we needed, but we needed quickly some control. So I, I went as a control with some other people. And I, it was at the same time, I had a stack of murders, brains. And, and the, the technician brought him in, and I didn't, there weren't any names on it. I said, I just want to make sure it's normal. You can tell quickly if it's grossly abnormal. And I got to the last scan, and... Um, in, in the last scan, I said, I, I said, this is in the wrong group. This is one of the murders, obviously. It was one of the worst cases of those areas controlling ethics and morality and everything. Uh, and, you know, there are two normals cut three different ways. There's a PET scan. Left column, that's normal pattern. The middle, and then on the, you see on the right there, you see where it's blue. That means it's not working, and it's supposed to be working in this, you know, in this task. And that was exactly how the murderers were. It was the same pattern. And also, disturbingly, the area having to do with empathy, and this, the second one, showed somebody who had uh, very low uh, emotional empathy. And I, I, and I just peeled back the name, because it was supposed to be a control. I, I had to like, alert the authorities on somebody. Uh, and it was me, of course. And so it was... And from that time... <laughs> Gee, look at the time. <laughs> and he was a high school science teacher, okay? I'm just I was, saying. Yeah, I was a high school chemistry teacher, too. And I, but I used to make bombs. I used to make bombs as a kid. I did all that stuff. It was great. Yeah. But at that time, growing up, as you know, yeah. this was called... He's, 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 <laughs> Whatever you say, I'm going to agree with. 
Well, that's, you know, now it'd be, you know, the kids are this psychopathic. Then it was like he's interested in chemical engineering, you know, so it was, which was true, I thought. But at any rate, uh, I kind of ignored it because we were so busy with this other stuff and starting this other company. Uh, and, uh, but all the genetics came back was the same way. So the genetics came out the same way with this person. It was, it was me. Uh, again, I didn't take it seriously. And then I gave a talk in, in Oslo, and these neutral people were all psych, you know, psychiatrists. It was about bipolar disorder. And he, they said something to me. And they said, as one of the things, because they saw all my behaviors and the genetics, my kid, they said, you don't know this, but you're probably a borderline psychopath at least. And I met with them afterwards. And this was the first case of somebody neutral, scientists who were neutral. So I flew back home, and I started to ask people. I said, this is, I'm sorry, this is based on your brain scan. They said that, or this is just based on and your my genetics and all the my history of what all I had. But in Oslo, it was just for them getting to know you. Is that what it's it was? Get cozy with them, yeah. And what, it was with the prime minister, ex prime minister, yeah. and he and he, he got off the stage fast too. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but when I came home, I started to ask all the psychiatrists I know and neurologists who knew me for many years and all my behaviors, some which are not so nice. <clears throat> I said, "You got to tell me what you really think of me. Right. Just be truthful. It'll be okay." Yeah. And they all started to tell me the same thing. They said, you know, for years we've been telling you you're, you're, you're psychopathic. You do all these. And I said, what do you mean? He said, remember this event, this event, we did this. I said, I thought, she said I was crazy. They said, we didn't say crazy, you're a psychopath. And I took the test, and then I asked my family and my wife, and this cascaded into something. It was purely by serendipity. But the thing is, I never thought of myself that way. And people who knew me really well weren't telling me anything. And they were letting everything slide. But when it's laid out in front of you, you go, oh, my God, that's, that's it. And you even have family history that's quite Yeah, four sinister. lines of murderers that go back. Yeah, <laughs> you know, my, my, grandfather was the first, the, my grandfather was the first guy who killed his mother. Is that right? Nice, nice. And, and so, <laughs> and so yeah, it's, we have four lines. And, you know, ancestry is not genetics, but when you get four of them, and they're all murderers, uh, they had slaves, uh, one group, one whole line liked to kill Jews. I mean, it was a very charming thing. Yeah. But a, a lot of murders, and it was quite bad, and, and, and it really got me to thinking. It's changed the way we do research. But in the end, and I talked to the, my, the psychiatrist, my family, I, I didn't care. And they said, that's the point. And I really don't. I still don't care. Isn't that fascinating? So it's so hard to segue off of that, but it was so in line with what Brian was saying. If you have, <laughs> I asked the squeamish question to Brian. Let me ask you the squeamish question. As a writer, do you ever worry that, that you're, you're writing something unspeakable that your character has done and that you're afraid audiences will just say, I hate this guy? Um. Well, that's, that's, that's like two different questions in a way for me because it's one is, uh, you know, am I drawing a line where I'm trying to keep the audience on my side? Uh, you know, I guess the question is, have I ever pulled back? Um, I think instinctively I, I probably have, but I, well, I don't know. I don't know that I want to write things that I, I would think are really crossing line. Anything involving children or anything, I wouldn't even, I don't think my mind could go there. Um, you know, it, it's a, I wrote the scene in The Sopranos where Adriana uh, got killed, where, oh, where yeah. she was murdered. And, and I, I didn't do this consciously. When I wrote the scene, I wrote that she crawls off camera and you hear a gunshot. And somebody said, why did, you know, you've written some of the most horrifically violent things we've seen on that show. Why did you not show her getting killed? And I said, God, you know, I don't know. I... At the time, it felt like the artful choice, but it was. I realized I didn't want. I did not want to see that. I didn't want to see her get killed, and uh, and I didn't know it at the time. But I just didn't. I liked Drea, the actress who played oh, the character. So I loved the character, and I just didn't want to see it. And it wasn't mm. that she's a woman, and I was suddenly being chivalrous with my <laughs> fictional. You violence. killed plenty of women yeah, off. But I just, yeah, it was weird. I just, I don't know. I just didn't want to see it. But, um, but, but, I would imagine that that as a conduit to the audience, we didn't want to see it either. Yeah, probably not. Right. And yeah, and there were certain things where you just there there is a line. Um, you know, it's funny. I mean, it, 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 depending on where you fall on the 
scale of, of what's acceptable or not, or what's worse, anything involving any kind of cruelty to animals is, of course, absolutely you would never do. There was a scene where, uh, again, it was on The Sopranos, where Tony Soprano was breaking somebody's ba- uh, car windows with a baseball bat, and the wife came out holding the dog, and the dog was barking. And it was, this, I think, kind of a, a little bit of a mind fuck. You see Tony Soprano holding a baseball bat and a yapping dog, and there's just a cut to the dog, and everybody, including us, went, oh, my God, you know, yeah. don't. That poor dog! That. Yeah, I mean, but you've seen the guy kill 50 people, and, and I think if, if he had killed that dog, you probably would have lost more people than, oh, yeah. because obviously the dog is an innocent creature. And, and again, that's the audience's rationalization is saying, well, oh, all those gangsters are there. They, they're in that life and they deserve it it's on some twisted level. But, of course, a dog or a child is, is where you draw the line. So um, That's but, fascinating. Yeah. Brian, are there any conscious choices you made like that where you pulled back thinking either this doesn't ring true or this is not something that I or the audience need to see or do or... Or it's crossed over. <clears throat> well, you you like Terry. I think you hope you don't do that. Um, I think if if the conditions are justifiable, that that your character would be in that position, <clears throat> then sky's the limit. I mean, I remember there there was a scene where Jesse's girlfriend Jane dies, and there was a lot of discussion about that and how that would go come about. And and I had a lot of uh, a lot of thought about that, and my uh, sort of thought objectively about how I would want to, the, to have that scene uh, conveyed, and and then just let it go. So uh, I first wanted to respond in a humane way, as a person who's choking to death, and stop it. So the impulse was to help. And then he stops himself because he realizes this is the same person who is just blackmailing him and, ex- and threatening to expose his whole enterprise, and everyone's life would be turned upside down. And um, so don't. But then I look at her again, and I said, she's just a girl. She could be my daughter. And so you have an impulse again to do something. But then I think, but she, is, she got Jesse on heroin and is going to kill that boy who I am, you know, have an affinity for. And I, I hesitate to say love at that time because he wouldn't have said I love him. But he, you know, so... You just broke out into character. An affinity for yeah, him. Yeah, you know, so, so we should let her, you know, and so he's going back and forth trying to make sense of the whole experience and his act of omission tells the story. That's a a big deal. I think that was a morality play in itself and a true one, I think, because most of what we consider moral behavior is when you don't do things, right? Mm -hmm. You don't do things. You inhibit behavior. And evil is usually associated when you do things. But there was a really great, uh, uh, something everybody's been through, which is when you don't do something, then it's evil, right? That you could have saved it, but you didn't do anything. And that has a turn on its head. And I think most people in their life can remember things where they thought they should have done something, and they yeah. didn't, and they yes. allowed it to happen. So I thought that was a wonderful uh, story of humanity, you know, when you make that choice to not do something. And I paid for it in a little way. My, my, uh, for some reason, I'm looking at Kristen Ritter's face, and she did a, a superb job on the, when it was on me off camera, really giving it her all, and, and every actor appreciates that. But I superimposed for some reason my mind went to this thing and looking at this young girl this little girl and that thought of she could have been my daughter my daughter my real daughter's face took her place Mm. and that oh man (laughs) that's oh yeah so it just it just took me to another Um, place i just want to ask you one last question which is you know we've now jokingly said that politicians are psychopaths you embody lbj on stage every night do you see any of that in your character as you head off, because we're about to let Brian go, we're going to take some audience questions. I cert- as soon yeah, as that. I do. I mean, he he was certainly a man who damned the the means, justifying the ends. Um, yeah, he would he would do anything in his arsenal to be able to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish, and he would throw someone under the bus who was an innocent, if need be, in order to do what. And it, sadly, you look at that and you say, well, he was able to gain tremendous uh, accomplishments domestically um, 
that we all share and enjoy to this day. Uh, but if he was not that type of person, would he have been able to accomplish these things? And a lot of historians would say no. No way. That's so why we need you know, that's why we need you know because who has that energy will take that risk and ultimately to do it very few people. It's um, kind of a sad s- statement though on humanity, isn't it? <laughs> to be able to... We need the psychopaths around us, which is why Professor Fowles is right there. I'm going to let you. Uh, we're going to. We're going to let you make your escape. Um, we're going to take some questions from the audience, and we're, but I want to take this moment to thank Brian Cranston to take time nice out of his fabulous schedule. Thank, thank you, thank you all. so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. Nice take care. James, pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Yeah, All right, good to see you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Don't walk over Thanks. that thing. I'm going to walk over here just to be more cozy. Um, so in the moments that uh, Brian is taking to exit gracefully from the stage, I want to just take a couple of questions from the audience. Um, I saw your hand first. Go ahead. That's a great question. Did everybody hear the question? Yeah, okay. Uh, we're in about 10 minutes of questions. Professor, why don't we start with you? And then... Well, I, the, the psychopaths and, and the really bad characters I talked to would not accept that. They're so uh, narcissistic. They will take that identity and, and, and stick with it. I think a normal person who starts doing bad things might do that. But it's too, this is for, you know, for a real a, a primary psychopath. That is, chumps do that. It's like for a real psychopath, chumps lie. You've got to be better than that. You know what I mean? So, but uh, I but think that would the, suggest that Walter White is not a psychopath. Yeah, he's not. I don't know. He, he's you know he's got what's called intermittent explosive disorder. Yeah, he had and that. He's got OCD, and he's got and he's a narcissist all the way, and a perfectionist and everything. Where's the OCD? The the obsessive compulsive disorder. Well, he's a, there's a case where he's so proud of his work. And he's so obsessed with doing it correctly. He's really good. He makes pure meth. And, um, and he's so, he, that his whole being has to do with that perfection. And so people with, uh, with, with OCD, and you know, people who are obsessive, but people with obsessive-compulsive personality disorder don't know what's going on. Mm. That's where the difference between a disorder and a personality disorder, they jump, because they don't realize it themselves at all. Right. And so somebody would have enough wherewithal to understand the two characters. They wouldn't really have the personality disorder. Terry, do you see Nucky as an alter ego, as a justification, a thin layer, a thinly disguised layer between the psychopath and the hero? No. I mean, it's interesting about the name. The Heisenberg thing, I think, fits uh, much better. Uh, Nucky just happened to be a nickname. (laughs) Gangsters just get nicknames. Although it's funny, it reminded me, you know, the question sort of reminded me of something I did when I was a kid, and this was total chump stuff uh, from a psychopath's point of view. Um, when I was stressed out as a little boy, I would carry around one of my green army men, the guy, the sniper, because it was easy to carry in my pocket. And I used to completely transfer my feelings of anxiety onto this green army soldier that I used to keep in my pocket. So if I had a test or there was a bully at school or whatever, I would pretend that the soldier was afraid. And I would tell him, you just hide in my pocket. I'm going to handle this. Just relax. You just get in there and don't worry about it. And I put him in, and then I would, I would have to protect this soldier. So I would take the test, deal with the bully, whatever. And then on the school bus on the way home, I would take him out of my pocket. And I told you it was going to work out. What are you worried about? I got, it's all under control. And, you know, eventually I lost the soldier. But, you know, it's sort of that was my way of dealing with stress. That's and eventually so you morph those things into your own personality. You go, all right, gee, I really don't want to do this thing I have to do, but I'm going to, you know, let me just, you know, buck up and, you know, man up or whatever you want to call it and do it even though the, the little kid inside you is going, oh, no, I don't want to, you know, have and that our, confrontation. And our, and our youngest brother is here. I see him, Mark. And, and he was, had all these older brothers like me and, and some were really psychopaths, pretty wild. Hmm. And not psychopaths, but they're pretty, you know, pretty intense guys. And he would uh, sit there and he had all these different animals like that and these different things, a toothbrush, mm-hmm. and he would just kind of focus. 
and just dealing with us. It must have been a way. Mark, is right. that the way it went? <laughs> and I think he must have a lot did. of stories yeah. of him growing up. Um, um, but it, yeah, another it's, question. It's, I want to uh, go to you. Helpful. such a good question. Right, yes, yes, yes. Hi, how are you? Yes. There is a dearth of female psychopaths. You're right. Well, there's a lot. The evil stepmother is sort of a pretty broad convention right. of, of version of psychopath. Um, you know, I guess I guess in terms of a of how, but it's interesting that it's not the evil mother, it's the evil stepmother. It's, you know, one removed because your mom, you want to keep that, I guess in, in the history of fiction, you want to keep the mother pure, so it's the, always the stepmother that's... Uh, and I'm not even joking, but isn't Lizzie Borden one of your... Cousin Lizzie. Yeah. No, I'm not kidding. I'm not oh, yeah, there's some beauties in yeah. there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, but the, with the, of course, there are genetic reasons why there are more males than female psychopaths, primary psychopaths. It's just that it turns out, you know, when you say my mother made me do it, well, the main warrior gene that affects serotonin is passed on the X chromosome. So the sons who are XY can only get it from the mother. Hmm. Whereas the females can get both forms, it's usually 50-50, and one gets suppressed. So there's, you know, just on that, there's some other... But the natural occurrence is far more... Male than female. Because it's passed. There's it, it the XY chromosome. male, the son has nothing to oppose it. He gets it, and if his mother has that, he's got it uh, all the way. Hmm. And so, so your mother is responsible a little bit, you know what I mean, in that way, but it's not her fault. Right. Answers a lot One of last question, and we will be taking genetic tests and brain scans <laughs> as you answer. Yes, right here. <clears throat> Before you answer that, I, I did point to you. So let me let you answer, uh, ask the question, and then we'll answer them both. Well, I think if Walter really was a psychopath, he, he would have been able to take all those millions of his initial two friends from his prior company. And he would have been able to milk yeah. them. And then he would have gone about his yeah. business. And I think the story would have ended right there. Mm. So it's fascinating. That That's the problem. Is th those characters really do that. They're hard to make interesting. Right? They have to be twisted a little bit because, yeah, he was not a psychopath. So my last question to you, Professor, is how have you amended or how, what, if anything, have you changed in your life with this self-realization? About what a stinker I am? Mm -hmm. okay. Well, after everybody told me the same thing, and I, and I, I didn't say anything to anybody, and I said, I'm, I can beat this. You can't beat it, but I can beat it because I'm really <laughs> confident about stuff. And so I started to do little things with my wife. So I did little behaviors uh, all during the day. And when, whenever you do something with some, somebody, there's a selfish way to do it and a selfless way to do it. And I noticed that every time my instinct was to do the most selfish thing. You could start out with who gets poured the wine first, and it goes downhill from there. <laughs> and I stopped doing it, and I started just to think for a second. And after a few months, she goes, you're really, you're, why are you such a nice guy lately? And I t so finally, and I did it with some other people and friends, and and I said, you know this is not from the heart. And she goes, I don't care. <laughs> I thought you had to really mean it, you know, especially with women. Do yeah. really, 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 really mean it. And I said, she didn't care at all. She says, you're, trying, you're doing it. And that's all I care. That's how you treat people. And that was such a shock to me. So I've tried to continue do doing that just with little things. But it's a war, you know, because I'm so naturally selfish about it. But I'm, you know, sure. trying because... What is it? Isn't it, I mean, go back to the, you know, the... Uh, the reptilian brain, as a guy, or as a human being, I shouldn't put it like that, somebody does something that pisses you off, you want to take a club and beat them on the head with it. And right. we have been, you can't do that. Right. So what you do is you pound your steering wheel or whatever it is That's we right. do or we drink or whatever. So, I mean, we're, it's all variations on yeah. what, you, what your gut instinct is. You, you just think about, I'd like to punch this person in the face and instead... I'm going to say, I'm, I'm going to write a letter to the editor. You know, whatever. You know, a very strongly worded yeah, letter. Yeah, and it's, it's, but it's all, you're still, your first instinct is to, you know. Right. And usually that's, and that's with the psychopaths where the serotonin system doesn't work properly. Because you get mad, people, everybody gets angry, and for 5, 10 seconds, 30 seconds, and then serotonin's released and it shuts all that down. That's the normal response. Right. Fight or flight, but then go, okay. 
Uh, and people who are psychopaths, that doesn't exist. They stay hot for days and years. And I, you know, one of the things that uh, with these two psychiatrists had told me, uh, they said the way you get even, your revenge, I, I will not show anybody any anger mm-hmm. at all. No anxiety, anger. They never know when I'm mad at me. That's not a good thing. Mm, uh, that's right. first of all, is not doing that. And I'll get even with them four years later. I'm able to delay <laughs> that. <laughs> and I do it with, you know, uh, the revenge is like perfectly balanced, I think. You right. know, it's like a, it's fair, it's like a Dexter thing, type revenge of thing. Is you know, like, just, yeah. oh, but they said that's all psychopathic. You're supposed to get angry. You're supposed right. to say, and say, you got me angry. What is that? Right. Uh, that's a normal thing. Yeah. And like you say, we have all these acceptable behaviors that we then do other than kick the dog. They used to right. do that 100 years sure. ago. But, and yeah, and so uh, this is, we're stuck in this, uh, this genome and this epigenome of being human. And we're fighting it all the time, right? Not easy. So, it's so fascinating. I hope we all learned a few lessons, tricks on how to be nicer, even if we don't feel it. Um, I want to thank Brian Cranston in absentia. Thank you, James Fallon. And thank you, Terrence thank Winter. You. And thank you for being here.